Hi, welcome once again to the Ethics Lab podcast. This is episode six. I'm Dr. George Sakaritis. I'm here with Dr. Gregory Peterson. How are you doing, Greg? I'm doing great, George. How about you? Well, we're still cold, I can say that, but I'm doing pretty well. I'm actually, uh, I'm flourishing as a human being, so that's a, a very ethical thing. Awesome. I'm, I'm almost flourishing. Excellent. Well, it's always a process, right? <laughs> And today, Greg, you are the star of this show. We're going to be talking about an article that you wrote in a recently, like very recently published book, Property Rights in Contemporary Governance, edited by Stacey Zavitaro, Gregory R. Peterson, that's you, and Anne E. Davis. And the, the title of your article is Intellectual Property and Fairness Across Borders, a Capabilities Account. And this is like basically fresh off the press, and I'm anxious to talk about it with you, and I'm sure you're excited about this getting out there. But why don't you uh, open up by telling us how this project first came about? Sure. Thanks, George. So this began as part of a uh, NEH seminar in 2014. So the seminar was led by Ann Davis, who's one of the co-authors in the volume. She's an economics professor at Marist College. And the, the NIH seminar was titled The Meanings of Property, and it was interdisciplinary. And so there were two philosophers, one of them myself, and a couple economists, and a number of legal historians, and people in English and, and other disciplines. So it was really a, a, a rich, mixed group with a number of prominent speakers coming in from across the country to speak on various aspects of property, and it was a beautiful setting. So the uh, summer in Poughkeepsie at, at Marist College, right on the banks of the Hudson River, and so it was, it was a wonderful time. And so the, the seminar was, was very rich and interesting. And then after the seminar, a few of us thought that it might be interesting to try to develop a volume that was based on partly on the contributions of those in the seminar. We also invited some other scholars from other areas to round out the volume and that's what led to the uh, the publication just this uh, this year so we're very happy it's taken a little bit so it's been uh, uh, five years almost I guess but uh, we're very happy and proud to uh, to have it out well good things come to those who wait and uh, hopefully this is a really well received volume and it sounds like you had a very interdisciplinary group there and uh, obviously it's a great time to be able to be in such a nice setting with other scholars. How did you decide on this particular topic for your essay? Because, I mean, obviously you have a lot of different types of scholars and a lot of different topics that might arise out of this. How did you come upon your particular essay topic? Well, it was not the topic I had in mind when I went in. So I was very interested in the issue of what philosophers call cosmopolitanism and the issue of, of moral obligations across borders and, and international obligations. So that was a starting point for me. I was also interested some in some of the research on both humans and, and even a little bit on primates on the idea that, that property and property rights is a, some sort of natural instinct or that sort of thing. There's there's some research that is, we might say, consistent with that. But as we got into the seminar and thinking about what I learned after the seminar concluded, my interest started to shift a bit. And 
I also just have a background thinking about science and technology issues. And in science and technology, intellectual property rights is an ever ongoing topic. And it's also one that, that's not only interesting in practical terms, but it's, it's interesting just intellectually. It's, it's a kind of intriguing question of what do we mean when we say that we own something that's, that's not physical, but yes, yet is um, somehow important to us. Definitely. And, and it's actually one of my favorite topics in my uh, ethics of informatics class that I teach, and maybe I'll share more about that later. But in the essay, let's go ahead and dive right into the article. You mentioned some of the challenges we face, you know, talking about intellectual property, and you've alluded to that versus kind of standard property rights. Could you explain what some of those challenges are to our listeners? Sure, I can do that. So for philosophers, a typical starting point for thinking about property is the work of John Locke. And so if you've had an introduction to philosophy course or, say, a a political philosophy course, you typically encounter Locke and you will often encounter uh, Locke's theory of property. So if we ask the question, why do people own things or what's the justification for saying I own something, uh, Locke gives us actually quite interesting argument. And what he does is he starts from the idea that we own our own bodies and that our, our bodies are, we might say, an extension of ourself. And so what we do then when we labor on something, so for Locke, the, the classic example is, say, farming. We, we uh, mix our labor with the soil. And by performing acts of labor, we put part of ourselves into the thing we worked on. So whether it's soil and farming or making a chair or other form of manufacturing, what makes something our property is the fact that we've made it, we put part of ourselves in it, and that gives us a sort of basic right to that thing. Now, uh, one interesting thing about Locke that, that is often overlooked in the popular sphere to the extent that people talk about this is that when Locke says this, he also mentions a couple of what philosophers refer to as, as, as Locke's proviso. So one of these uh, concerns the proviso as much and as, as needed. So if you have a large surplus, say, of grain, and uh, you don't really need it, and other people desperately need it, that's a limitation on your property right. So the idea that I'm just going to hoard grain for the fun of hoarding grain while my na- neighbors starve, Locke would frown on that, and he would say that's a limitation on, on your property right. A second proviso is what's called the spoilage proviso. proviso. So if uh, you farm a lot and you have a lot of grain and uh, just let it sit and rot while people starve, that's also a a limitation. That's a misuse of your labor from Locke's point of view. But the starting point, of course, is that, that labor point. And so that's what is influential today that when we talk about property, we think that we've we've put some effort into it, that there's some reason to say that it's ours. So even if we haven't worked on it, we've purchased it with money, that money is something we've worked for, presumably, and that also makes our ownership legitimate in that sense. What makes intellectual property interesting, among other things, is first, it's not material. So that might seem to be different in some ways. But intellectual property is also different in other ways as, um, as well. And so just two features of intellectual property that are interestingly different. One concerns consumption. And so if I 
eat food. So if I buy food, the reason I buy food presumably is to eat it. And when I eat it, I consume it and it's no longer available to others. If I, so to speak, consume a track of music that I've downloaded off the internet, the fact that I've consumed it, I've listened to it, doesn't use it up. I can use it any amount of times. And so intellectual property is different than much of our material property in that way. So consuming something doesn't reduce it to, to nothing or something like that. The second feature of intellectual property that's really interesting is that, is that it's non-rivalrous. So the fact that I consume some music on my iPhone or uh, smartphone or, or some, some device doesn't prevent you from also consuming it. In fact, we can all consume the same song at the same time for as much as we want and not use it up. And so that's also distinctive from uh, material property, which if I eat food, I buy food, I use it, and my using it means that you can't use it. And so unlike most material property, intellectual property is both non-consumable and non-rivalrous. Okay, great. And in the essay, you mention the song uh, Prince's Raspberry Beret. I'm guessing you're influenced by the fact that you are from Minnesota and Prince is a native Minnesotan. It's like, would the consumability matter if, say, you bought the beret in a secondhand store? Well, it, it depends. So, I mean, you're referring to the, the song, not to an actual beret, right? Um, so there are some things that matter in terms of property so that relate somewhat to this. So if we talk about a song like Raspberry Beret, which you might think of as a, as a kind of modern classic, the, uh, the fact that I own the digital copy of the song might be all that matters to me. So if I buy the used CD in the store, what might matter to me is only the fact that I just want to hear the song. And if I want to hear the song, that doesn't prevent anyone else from hearing the song. And, and so we might say, well, as long as I'm not hurting anyone, that's perfectly fine if everyone has a copy of Raspberry Beret. But it might also matter to me that I have that particular CD. There might be something about having the original run of CDs, perhaps. So this is, this is a more obvious point with like vinyl albums, which people get excited about. So if I have one of the original print vinyl albums, that is different than the actual intellectual property that's stored on the vinyl album, right? So the physicality of the vinyl album, at least for some people, might add something to ownership that just the music itself uh, has. And there, the issue is, there is not simply the intellectual property, which is just the series of tones that make music. It's the physicality that maybe someone values. Yeah, definitely. And I think that gets kind of complex. And so I thought that that, uh, that works as a nice homage to the song and a question for ethical discussion. So in my class, uh, my, the informatics class I, I mentioned earlier, I show my students a TED Talk, and the speaker in that talk is really pushing the idea of actually backing down on intellectual property, because they argue that intellectual property constrains creativity, because we learn and we become more creative by using the tools of previous creativity and build on it and reimagine. And I think, I think it's a fairly strong argument, but at the same time, we want to reward people's labor for their intellectual property because they've invested time and expect a you know monetary reward for that and you allude to that in in your discussion 
and I, this is kind of comes to a head, especially in the modern day with the Sonny Bono Act and then, you know, uh, the, the Mickey Mouse clause as Mickey Mouse keeps falling under, you know, intellectual property rights, copyright. So do you have anything to, to add to that? I kind of want to start to, to lay the groundwork for where we're going with this. But what, do you, what, what comments might you have about that sort of approach to, let's say, extension of copyright? Sure. So there's a, there's a couple of interesting issues right off the bat. So as some background for our listeners, that when we talk about this sort of issue of intellectual property, there's a long history to it. It actually uh, goes back to the U.S. Constitution, which protects, uh, provides some protection for, for this. And when we look at modern computer science, this is really a, a long-standing debate within computer science, which, which goes back to before when I first started teaching, where you had some computer programmers who were arguing against the grain even back then that computer programs are not the thing that should be subject to ownership. And, and some of this, uh, from a contemporary perspective, might seem idealistic, but there is also this kind of serious point of when we are making computer programs, we're making a series of instructions. Computer programs ultimately boil down to numbers. And so then the question arises, can anyone really own a series of numbers? And so in, in modern patent law, the answer is, is no. Uh, so one of the things you can't patent uh, or claim a copyright on is a mathematical equation. Uh, mathematical equations are, so we might think about what exactly they are, but some might say, well, they're universal principles or even, you know, we're talking about science, they're laws of the universe. And because of that, they're not anything that anyone can own. So when we talk about computer programs, this gets into the question of what exactly are computer programs? Are they just numbers? Uh, and if they're numbers, that might suggest that they're not ownable. But if there's something more than that, then perhaps they are. But of course, the other piece of that is when we talk about programs, people put a lot of labor into it. And people obviously want to be rewarded for their labor. There are a few altruistic computer programmers out there, but most people go into it for the money. Computer programming uh, pays quite well. And so if you were not anticipating getting paid well, then you would probably go into to something else. So that question of how do people make money, make a living is also an important one that relates to property rights, including intellectual property rights. And that might relate to kind of where I, I want to take this discussion. But one of the, the major critiques of current laws or is that the current laws are better than nothing, but that they really don't help intermediate and less developed countries, um, that they help more developed countries. They may be biased that way. Could you expand on that a little bit? You, this is, I think, a fairly important part of your argument. Right. So in, in my paper, I begin by looking really at the sort of issues of, of the international ramifications of intellectual property rights. And, and this has been a large issue for some time, in part because when you look at international commerce, the more developed countries, or sometimes called MDCs, so countries like the U.S. or Japan or Great Britain, we are what's, what are called service economies. We don't necessarily uh, manufacture a lot of things anymore, or at least that's a diminished part of our economy. A lot of our money in the economy comes from ideas. And so if we look at what are the big companies generating a lot of profits, other companies like Google, still companies like Microsoft, Apple makes things, of course, but really what Apple does is it creates the ideas 
of machines, and then it makes the machines elsewhere, sometimes subcontracting out with other companies like Foxconn. And so this is a really important issue for, for international relations and international development because some would argue that when we look at these international property regimes, they're unfair. And there's some basis for this. So if we look at, say, pharmaceuticals, pharmacy companies make enormous profits. And if I am a poor country where my population is, is making not much per year, uh, this can be a major issue if the drugs are expensive and people can't afford them. So this is a kind of classic issue with regard to HIV AIDS, which has influenced the development of property regimes, specifically with regard to pharmaceuticals. So when we look at the, the, um, the data on this, uh, so I'm, I'm not an economist, I'll confess, but when I've looked at, when I was looking at the research on this, the, the, the trend appears to be that when we, we ask the question, are intellectual property rights beneficial to the economy? Uh, if we're looking at more developed countries or uh, intermediate countries, um, the answer is yes. But if we look at those countries that we might class as least developed, those countries that fall into what's sometimes called the bottom billion, the answer is not so clear and in fact is maybe no. Uh, so for those countries, there's an argument to be made that maybe they should have greater access to things that are normally covered as intellectual property in more developed countries so that they have an equal playing field and can actually uh, achieve the things that we can achieve. So if we have access to medicines, they don't. If we have access to sophisticated computer programs, but they don't, um, they have a much harder time getting ahead just to even to the basic level. And this can involve lives on the line, right? So when we talk about particularly about disease burdens, um, it makes a difference. Excellent. So to kind of, let's say, cut to the chase, so to move toward your conclusion, you land on a joint welfare fulfillment account. That's what you call it. One of the main reasons you argue for intellectual property rights is for extrinsic reasons. So well-being being the main one there. And I think you've kind of started to touch on that here. In your essay, you talk about this hypothetical land of plenty. And intellectual property may mean less for extrinsic value, but it still has a role in intrinsic value. And so you give an example of uh, the violins, and you wonder why someone might steal a violin if they could create it for themselves. So in this land of plenty, you could just have whatever you want, just to kind of say it in, in a short order. But doesn't this neglect some other issues? So I think that even if you go to that extreme, and I know, so listeners, read the essay and you'll get the full picture. I think that'd be great. But it, it seems to neglect some other issues like free will or a person's nature or, let's say, joy that comes from stealing. So it isn't just about the extrinsic issue uh, of having something uh, or, you know, being able to have whatever you want, but that there are some intrinsic values that will be affected for different people at different times. And I just want to kind of to move us in that direction. And just I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So before we do that, let me just ask, because I'm not totally sure I understand the distinction you're making between so in extrinsic property rights and intrinsic property rights. So what would, be, what would be the difference between those two? Well, it's more about the extrinsic versus intrinsic value of the rights. So if you live in this hypothetical land of plenty, there's no extrinsic rights anymore because you can have whatever you want. So you don't benefit. In other words, so if I create a song, 
and I sell that song and I make money off of it, that's part of the extrinsic kind of benefit for me. I'm getting something tangible for it. Um, not the intrinsic value of, I really enjoyed making this or, you know, I took joy for whatever aspect of it. So that, that's where I'm going. Cause in your hypothetical, you're trying to eliminate the extrinsic and say, well, everyone has that. They don't benefit any further by that. So we only look at the intrinsic at that point. And I think what I understand your argument to be is that that falls short. So that's kind of what I'd like you to comment on. Yeah. Okay. So what you would say, so if we say something's an intrinsic property, right? What makes it intrinsic is that uh, perhaps I have, I have that right for some reason, no matter what. And so if we look at say Locke's account, uh, at least the labor part of it has follows that line. So the idea that I've put my labor into something confers intrinsic value to my relation to the thing I owned, right? So in the case of farming, uh, or if I'm making something, so let's take the violin analogy, which we'll get to the into a moment. But if I make a violin, there's some intrinsic connection between me and the violin that can never be broken in which I have some, some priority to in some way. Yes, exactly. It's something that is intrinsic to you and whatever you're creating. So it isn't something that is bestowed upon you by the value by the community. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's get to the, to the argument. So uh, the argument I make in the paper is, is that, that the idea of property rights, especially intellectual property rights are deeply related to, to welfare. And so I've been developing a uh, welfareist account of ethics that, that is deeply linked to virtue ethics. So uh, in, a, in another work I'm developing at the moment, I'm, I'm sometimes referring to this as a virtue list account. So list referring to what in ethics is called an objective list account of, of, of welfare and also um, well-being. And so the idea is that when we think about things like property, we need to take the relative welfare of individuals into account. And this may mitigate the property rights in, in a variety of ways, just as, as Locke suggested with those uh, provisos. So how do philosophers think about this? Well, there's, there's a number of arguments that rely on I, the idea of the state of nature. So the state of nature is this very common argument that occurs in political philosophy and uh, involves the idea of social contracts. And so the classic reference for the state of nature argument is the work of Thomas Hobbes to begin with, but also John Locke. So John, John Locke is a state of nature theorist. And so what the state of nature theorist will do is try to abstract from all our current trappings of civilization to get to the bare bones and so the way that they do this is they imagine a state of nature where there's no civilization, there's no society, we're each presumably on our own in some relevant way. And then we ask, well, what are the moral rules that apply in the state of nature? And, and so it turns out state of nature theorists differ on this. So for Hobbes, uh, more or less, there aren't any. Um, Self-interest ends up trumping other considerations typically for Hobbes. For Locke, uh, however, there is a kind of principle of natural law that's behind his theory, and this is part of what informs his account of property rights when we get to the labor theory. Modern property theorists also use the state of nature argument. So one example I mentioned in my uh, article is this argument fairly recently by this 
scholar um, A.D. Moore, uh, where he uses um, a Robinson Crusoe example. So we think of uh, Robinson Crusoe as stuck on an island along with his man Friday, and the, and uh, Moore asks, well, what would be the the property rights for Robinson Crusoe and and Friday? So that's one way of going about thinking about what counts as genuine property or not. The route I go is a bit different. So instead of going to the state of nature, I, I uh, engage in this thought of ex- thought experiment that I just referred to the, as the state of plenty. So I kind of like to think of this as um, the Star Trek future, sort of, where um, there aren't any needs or wants because uh, society has ad- advanced to the point where they're all provided for. And so in the state of plenty, we could ask, well, what are the property rights who we would still want? So if we go back to that violin example, um, let's suppose I could make as many violins as I wanted. So let's suppose we can kind of move from maybe Star Trek to say Harry Potter here. Let's just say I have a magic wand, and with my magic wand, I can make a gazillion violins. Does it matter to me, I ask, that I own all those million violins or not? If someone just walked by and picked up one of my million violins, would it matter to me that someone did that? And the answer to me at least seems to be no, because one, I have a million violins, and two, I could always make another with my magic wand. Now, um, there might be some differences there. So let's suppose, and this I think addresses to some extent George's question, let's suppose I just really enjoy making violins and I enjoy the craftsmanship and so I, I spend hours and hours on each violin. And so that implies some sort of attachment most certainly. And so if that was my only violin, that might have some importance to me that would matter independent of its form or structure. That gets to the materiality of the violin. So what's important is not the form of the violin, the intellectual property. What matters is that materiality in some way. But if I made 20 violins a day, if I was like really good at it, and so still I had 100 violins, would it matter to me so much that someone took one of them? It seems to me I would say probably not. I'd probably say, here, have a violin. I'm very proud of this violin. I made, made it. Um, remember me, maybe. But you can have it. You can have it for free. So as long as we're in the state of plenty, it's a little bit different. Um, so is that, does that make sense to you, George? Yeah, I think that that makes perfect sense. And I think in the context of your article, it, it works. The question I'm trying to get at is, is there another ethical, let's say, uh, duty or virtue that's being broken when someone steals a violin? So it isn't that I miss the violin. It's that I feel that, you know, uh, my honor has been besmirched or that something was taken that I might have given freely. So it isn't the loss of the violin that actually causes the angst. It's the fact that it was stolen. So that's kind of where I'm taking this question is, are there other ethical kind of virtues in mind that might trump and actually intrinsically affect the person? That, that's really what I'm trying to, to get at. Yeah, so that's, that's an interesting question. So even if I have uh, a million violins and they're sitting in my backyard, has someone done me wrong by, by taking one of those? And so we might think of what the context is, right? So often what we do, so this is the way I might begin to approach it. So often what we do when we envision the state of nature is we're really not envisioning the state of nature. We're envisioning more a collapsed society after we no longer have society, but had society, and where we used to have rules, Mm -hmm. but maybe don't anymore. 
And that's actually very different than the state of nature because in, in that state, there's what we might call a residual set of rules that we expect people still to follow. Mm-hmm. And when they don't follow them, then there's a sense of violation. And so the question then becomes, what were those previous rules? Um, and so one thing to keep in mind here is that, I mean, there is cultural uh, variation on property regimes. So not every country, uh, not every culture treats property the same way. Sometimes property is conceived to be very individualistic. Sometimes it's much more communal. And so the, a key question, I think, to bring up with respect to the scenario you envision about stealing is, is what was the prior expectation of the individuals? And, and that shapes how we think of the rightness or wrongness of that action. The one other thing that's related to that, I would add, is that as a virtue theorist, part of that equation is, is this, that if someone takes a violin I made, so first, when does it count as stealing, when doesn't it? So, right, so that's the important question. But then what, what's the motive of the person doing it? Right? So did the, what, did the person intend to steal? Was it an intended violation? Was it understood by a, as a violation by either party? So th- this gets into more just the consequences, but the, the kind of character of the individuals involved. Yeah, I'd agree totally. And I, I think this, in, in some ways, what I'm doing here is just trying to open this up to, to see what scenarios we could come up with that this doesn't quite work. So this actually brings us, I think, to a larger question about ethics and objective ethics, you know, versus kind of culturally driven ethics, or, you know, I mean, even virtues, maybe this opening a can of worms here, but I think even virtues can be culturally driven, because some will hold one virtue in a higher regard than another. So I I think it's just a good thing for us to think about. Obviously, we're just scratching the surface with this article. And I really encourage our listeners to read it if you get a chance. Do you have any last comments you'd like to make about the article? Um, yeah, so just to return it to intellectual property, because we were, I think, straying a little bit away from that. Um, but this relates to the question you asked. Is, and when we talk about relig- intellectual property, I mean, it's, it's in a lot of ways different than the physicality of the making of the violin. So that's why I wrote part of the reason I wrote the art- article the way I did. But another very relevant point um, for this sort of issue, particularly when we look at the, the issue of international obligations about property, is most of the property rights we're talking about are not owned by individuals. They're owned by corporations. And that also is a very sort of thing. So I would suggest that when we talk about the basis of property, the the welfareist considerations, so welfare meaning well-being here, the good of people, the well-being considerations loom much larger when we're talking about intellectual property perhaps uh, even then we're talking about um, or talk about intellectual property with respect to corporations than about uh, with respect to individuals. I think that's a great point and that kind of I think whets our appetite for a whole new discussion in that regard. Let me ask this before we close. Do you have any plans to follow up on this work or is does this connect to some of your other uh, more recent research? Perhaps Eventually. So the, uh, the basis of it does. So this work on the idea of capabilities and the idea of, of thresholds, which we really didn't talk about today, but which is in the article, and the relation of those to virtues. So that's central to my book project that I'm working on. Um, at some point, so I don't have any immediate plans for intellectual property or property in general, but at some point, I'll, I'll probably end up returning to that in one, one flavor or another, but not, not immediately. Okay, excellent. 
again, go read the article. I think that brings us to the end of the podcast. So thank you, Greg. I really would encourage everyone to go out and read this article, and we'll put some links to the book on Twitter and Facebook so you can find it easily uh, so you don't have to comb through the podcast. But that pretty much brings us to the end of this week's Ethics Lab podcast, and we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook so you could find great links like the one for Greg's book or for relevant news stories on ethics, and, and we encourage you to join the conversation about ethics in our modern age. That brings us to the end of the Ethics Lab podcast, and we thank you for listening, and we encourage you to be virtuous and flourish as much as is humanly possible.